I'm Pastor Andrew, and I don't always preach or usually preach in a long sleeve t-shirt. I'll explain why in the outset here, so you don't worry about my lack of dress code. Uh, but uh, this is a, a shirt from The Chosen. How many of you have seen the, the, the TV show The Chosen? So it's a very good show about the life of Jesus. My wife Karen and I like it quite a bit. And she entered a draw to go and see a premiere of the first uh, two episodes of season four at a theater in Winnipeg through CHVN. And she won some tickets. So we're leaving right after church here to go and to watch the, the, two, the premiere of the first two episodes of season four. And uh, creator Dallas Jenkins is going to be there. And we're going to get to be able to take a picture with him so we can fanboy it a little bit there. Um, we're looking forward to it, and so I'm already ready to go, but, but there is lots that we're going to do together before here and then as we dig into God's Word and study together. Now, I'm sure you've heard the phrase, like, father, like son. And this is a saying that speaks to this uncanny ability for children to take after their parents. And not just in the ways that are taught or modeled. There's some things like personality traits and quirks that, that the kid should never know about and yet still emulate in a parent. So, for example, when I was younger as, as a boy, one of the things that I loved to do was to, to imagine a, a baseball game. And I would go outside and find a place that could be the pitcher's mound, and then I would pitch and then imagine what would happen, and then I would find a batter's box, and I would play these games outside and, and, and imagine them. And without me really teaching or modeling this for my kids, both Eli with hockey and now Malachi with football do the exact same thing where they play their imaginary games of sports. And it's endearing. I I really appreciate the fact that there is some way in which they just are like me. But then I start to think, well, what what exactly are my kids emulating? How much of what I say and do are they picking up on? I love the fact that they can show this little quirk of imagining sports or playing sports like that. But, but there are parts of my life that I really don't want them to be like me. Whenever there is anxiety that pop up in our, in our children, I, I have to feel partly responsible for that. And I wish better or more for them. And then I look at my behavior and I know that, that, that with the Lord's help, I can model many good things, but I'm not perfect And so that they have the opportunity to see me do things that are less than desirable. And they can pick up on those things too. In his life, Isaac points out the truth of this saying, like father, like son. He also points out the truth that some behavior is worth repeating, while other behavior should have been left behind. Our story today takes place in Genesis chapter 26, the first 11 verses. And if you have your Bible with you, You can turn to there and you can follow along in this narrative. But the story begins in the setting uh, where there is a famine in the land where Isaac and his family are currently residing, which is likely the area or the region of Bir Lahai Roy, where uh, Isaac has been there for a long time. This was the place that Rebekah was brought to meet Isaac and where they got married. And they have stayed there for a good long period of time, likely because it was at that point a fairly fertile place. But now that has changed. There is a famine in the land. And the author of this book goes so far as to say that this was a different famine than what happened in the days of Abraham, Isaac's father. And so we know that we're reading a unique story. Something that happened to Isaac at this um, specific moment in time that's different than what happened to Abraham. 
And you can go back to Genesis chapter 12 and you can see that Abraham, as he was journeying in Canaan, also ended up facing a famine and went down to the land of Egypt. And so when the author says that there was a famine and, and Isaac needed to go somewhere else, he's saying it's different than Abraham's story, but he's also inviting us to compare and contrast Abraham's story with what happens to Isaac. There are an incredible number of parallels here, and we are invited to learn not just from what happens to Isaac, but also the lessons that maybe ought to have been learned with Abraham many years before. A famine would have been a serious issue for someone like Isaac because he and his family were nomadic. They didn't have any permanent homes or structures. They would have wandered around a region with their tents that they would have lived in and with all of their livestock that would have represented their livelihood. And they needed to go where there was food and water so that the livestock could graze and flourish and multiply and so that the family could have food to eat. And so as soon as you would have a season of severe famine, then you needed to leave that region and go somewhere where food and water was plentiful. The first uh, obvious solution for Isaac would have been to go to Egypt because it would have been close. And because of the Nile Delta, Egypt was uniquely suited in that region to weather the storm of a famine because that Nile Delta would always be able to give them what they needed to survive. But God asks Isaac not to go to Egypt like his father. There is a map, I think, that it can show you a little bit of these areas or regions that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob would have traveled. You'll notice that both Abraham and Jacob traveled mostly in Canaan, what would later become the nation of Israel. But Isaac journeyed to the south in the Negev, in what we call the, the wilderness that the Israelites would wander in before they entered the promised land much more fertile at that time. He was very close to Egypt. It would have been easy for him to go there. But instead, he journeys northward to Gerar and to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, because God warns him not to go to Egypt like his father. He says, yes, you are, are, are living in this similar story, but your story will be different. You do not go to Egypt like Abraham did. That's a difference. But in a similar fashion, Isaac goes to Gerar and to the land of the Philistines with a king named Abimelech, which also happens to be a city and an area that his father Abraham visited. And you can read that story in Genesis chapter 20. So we have a difference and also a similarity. Now, the Abimelech that Isaac meets and interacts with is likely not the same Abimelech that Abraham met because there was a, about 90 to 100 years difference in time between what happens in Genesis 20 and Genesis 26. And so Abimelech means, the name means, my father is king. So it was probably a throne name. So whoever took the throne in Gerar would then be called Abimelech, or it could have been a popular name for that line or that dynasty. So for sake of clarity, we're going to call the Abimelech in Isaac's story Abimelech Jr. And we refer back to Abraham, it'll be Abimelech Sr. And that's the way that I understand the, the, the people that are taking part in this story. And so as Isaac prepares to go, God gives him both a command and a promise. We find this in the Lord's instructions, Genesis chapter 26, verses 2 to 5. And the Lord appeared to Isaac and said, do not go down to Egypt, dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. 
I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all of these lands. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So did you pick those up? What was the command? Well, we already had that command I, I mentioned that, that God said not to go to Egypt. But the command he, he also gives to Isaac is to sojourn in the land of Gerar and in the land of the Philistines and that area. To sojourn means to dwell somewhere as an alien or a foreigner. It is to live there temporarily like you are just passing through. This will be a place where Isaac can have his family be provided for. But it will not be his home. But it would be a safe haven. That is the command, sojourn in this area. And the promise that God gives him as he goes is that I will be with you. And I will bless you. And I will one day give this land to your offspring, to your descendants. It might seem common to us, this promise that God says, I will be with you. But this is the first time recorded in all of Scripture that God gives this promise to a person. Isaac is the first one to hear these words that God says, go and I will be with you. Something that would become a very common promise and reminder for God to his people through their very many trials after this time. But this was the first. And then he also makes the promise to give Isaac's descendants the land. Because he is going now out of the Negev Valley into south of the southern part of Canaan, which would one day be the promised land. And the land had always been tied to the promise that God made with Abraham. He had told Isaac's father Abraham to leave, to journey, to come to Canaan. And this would be the place that one day your descendants will settle and will dwell. And this didn't happen until the conquest after the exodus of the people of uh, Israel. Uh, but this would one day be true for Isaac and his descendants. He would not see this promise come true, but his offspring certainly would. And so Isaac goes to Gerar, and he continues to follow in his father's footsteps. In a good way, by obeying the commands of God and by trusting in his promises, and in a negative way, by being deceitful. Isaac chooses to use deception, and he is certainly not the first one to come up with this idea. So what did Isaac do? We read these words in um, verses 6 and 7. So Isaac settled in Gerar. Good, he obeyed. Good job. And when the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister. For he feared to say, My wife, thinking, Lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. So Isaac goes and he knows he has a very beautiful wife in tow. In fact, this is the second time in the Bible that the author has gone out of their way to say that Rebecca was very beautiful and attractive. And he knows this, and he's worried about the fact that people may seek to do him harm as her husband to get him out of the way so that they can have Rebecca for themselves. And so he says and claims that Rebecca is his sister instead of his wife because he is afraid they will kill him. Sound familiar? It should, because Abraham, his father, had done this twice before. Twice before. So when Abraham went down to, to Egypt during the famine in Genesis 12, he was worried that uh, he would be in trouble or in danger because of the beauty of his wife, Sarah. And so he said, she is my sister. And then she ended up in Pharaoh's house. And then in the same way, when he was back in Gerar with Abimelech Sr. in Genesis 20, he had the same fear, he did the same thing, he deceived the king, 
and that had the same result. In all of these instances, the deception of Abraham and Isaac was not a God-honoring course of action. It was cowardly and it was selfish. You might be thinking, come on, pastor, cut him a break. I mean, it's just a little white lie. It has a, maybe a, a good idea at the heart of it just to protect the family. Well, it wasn't just a small thing. It was a big deal because, and here's the truth, deception threatens others. So when Abraham and later Isaac do this thing, when they deceive, when they lie, when they are not true, what they do is they protect themselves, but they, they put other people in harm's way. So when Abraham did this to, to um, Pharaoh, Pharaoh thought that Sarah was fair game, and, and the Scripture says that Pharaoh brought him, uh, her into his house. And we should read that as harem, <laughs> okay? So Sarah gets brought into Pharaoh's harem because Abraham lied about her true status as his wife. And the Lord then afflicted Pharaoh and his entire house with a plague out of retribution for the fact that he took a married woman into his harem. And when Abraham did this again to Abimelech Sr., Sarah was once again taken into his house, read Harem. This is what kings did back in those days. And the Lord then, a little more merciful, appeared to Abimelech in a dream, warning him that he would take his life if he did not return Sarah to Abraham. It's still very harsh, but gave him the opportunity because the Lord knew that he had been deceived by Abraham. He gave Abimelech the opportunity to get out of that sin. And so both Pharaoh and his house and Abimelech and his house were put in danger because of the deception of Abraham. And what about Sarah and Rebekah? In both cases, they were put in harm's way because their husbands worried more about protecting themselves than they did their wives. In essence, they were saying, if, if they know that I am her husband, then, then I will be uh, protecting her, then they will have to come after me and have to come through me to get to her. So I will just move myself to the side. She's now free game. She gets taken into another uh, king's court, right? And then I am safe over here. It was cowardly. It was selfish. It, it threatened the kings and their houses and their wives. And when we are deceitful, it is almost always to seek to save ourselves and pass on the cost of an action to somebody else. That's the heart or the root of deception. A few Fridays ago, we had uh, Tim and Heather over at our house and their family. We shared a meal. We played some music. It was really wonderful. And then the time came where I needed to run Eli and his friend to youth. And so I jump in the van, I, I, and then I throw it into reverse. And then as I'm backing out of my garage, I hear a thunk. And then I remember, oh, right, we've got company over. There's a car behind me. Heather, did you know this happened? Okay, good. Now you're, I hit your car. So... Um, <laughs> So then I pull forward, and I'm like, okay, oh shoot. And then I get out, and I look, and I mean, we, I just had my foot barely off the brake. Uh, you couldn't tell, you couldn't even tell that I had hit anything. And so I'm looking at it, and I said, they'll never know. <laughs> that was my first reaction. There's no, if I keep this a secret, they could never figure it out. But of course, even though that's my first reaction, I decided to eventually tell Tim, and now Heather and all of you. So... <laughs> But, but this is our motive, and why? Because if I can be deceptive in that moment, I can save myself, and maybe there is something that was hidden under all of, all of the snow and all the stuff with winter. Maybe there is something there that needs to be fixed, and I could pass that cost on to somebody else and save my own skin. That's our gut reaction. That's the heart of deception. It's what we're trying to do in those instances. Are you more worried about being caught 
Or are you worried about the consequences that threaten those around you? But there's a second reason why these things that might just seem like a white lie, maybe a bit excusable, are still dangerous. Deception also threatens God's blessing. Not just other people, but God's blessing in our life. You see, ironically, both Abraham and Isaac were trying to protect the blessing that God had given them. He said, you are going to be the fathers of a great nation. And if they lose their life, then then that very promise or covenant seems to be at risk. And so they were, I think, perhaps motivated by trying to take control and and take control of protecting this blessing of God on their own. But by doing so, it blew up in their faces and each time threatened that very blessing that they were seeking to protect. In Isaac's case, he was caught in a, well, an intimate moment with Rebekah. We see this in in verse 8. When he, being Isaac, had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. In church, I hate to say it, but this was not them. This was not Isaac telling her a dad joke and she was laughing at him and they were sharing this jovial moment. Um, we're all adults here, right? Okay, so that, that uh, Hebrew word literally means to play with, which ought to really be translated as fondling. So there's a reason why Abimelech knows right away that this is not his sister anymore. In fact, the truest way, the truest way to translate this, and I'm not kidding, was conjugal caresses, which was a phrase I hoped to never say in front of you all. But this is what's happening right here. They were not ha-ha laughing. They were... They were engaging in husband and wife activity, okay? And Abimelech witnesses this, and that's why he knows without a shadow of a doubt, you have lied to me. She is not your sister. She is your wife. The gig was up. There was no more mystery here. And I'm sure that Abimelech, whether he had been alive as a younger man during the time of Abraham or whether he heard it from his father, he has seen this movie before, and he is furious. He is angry. And his response was much the same as his father's. We see this in verse 9. Abimelech called to Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. Again, no more mystery. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. And Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. He is furious because Isaac, like his father, has put other people in danger because of his deceitfulness. And so out of this anger, now Isaac is in a tough spot. I mean, he needs to be in this land. He needs to be there in order to have enough food and water for his household to survive and thrive. And through his deception, he has threatened it all. And in all three instances of Abraham and Isaac, all the rulers were infuriated by the deception. They were angry. That made sense then that all rulers had the opportunity and the motive to take their lives. The very thing that they sought to do to protect them put their lives at risk because they were now monarchs who had absolute power and they were furious with them. And all rulers thankfully sent them on their way because the Lord stepped up and protected Abraham and Isaac as he'd always promised he would. Not only did this deceit put their lives at risk, it put the promise of God's blessing at risk as well. And we may not have a specific covenant like Abraham and Isaac, this very specific promise of call of God in our life that we want to protect. But deceit works the same way. It undermines those very many blessings that God has given us, those very many promises that God has given to us through his word. Deceit 
undermines those and threatens those as well. When I think then of how deceit seeks to protect you at at the cost of others, when I think of how deceit undermines God's blessing, I think of, of how this affects marriage relationships in particular. I mean, this is one of, of the ways that God has chosen to bless you. If you are married, God has, has entered into this covenant with you and your spouse. God has done something supernatural in bringing two people to become one. He is a part of this relationship. This relationship is one of the many, uh, probably most tangible blessings that he can give you in this life. And if you are, keep secrets and you deceive and you're not honest with your spouse, then one of the things that you threaten is the sanctity of that marriage and the blessing that God wants it to be. Just a few days ago, I was uh, spending some time with Silas, uh, just out in our, our living room, and uh, Karen was around as well. I think just the three of us at home. And Silas was feeling very lovey, and he gives me a hug and says, Dad, who do you love more, me or mom? And I said, that's easy. I love your mom <laughs> more than you. And he was, he was upset. He's like, what? What are you talking about? That's not fair. It should either be me or you should love us all equally. That would be fair. That's what he says. We should love us all equally. And then Karen pipes up, and she told him, like, she said, hey, this is the best gift that a, hus- a father and mother can give to you is to love each other the most. The stability of our entire family is on the bedrock of the fact that in all human relationships, we are each other's priority. This is one way. By loving each other with that priority, we give that as an act of love to you as a child. We, we help keep this marriage, this family together. And deceit works to undermine all of that. We're not perfect. We don't have a perfect marriage. We have goals, and we have goals that I think are, are upheld by the truth revealed in God's word, including a story like this. At the heart, deception is a way of getting what we want out of people and situations. But the alternative is to trust that God will come through, and we don't need to try to get out in front of these problems. We don't need to try to control the situation through deceitfulness. We trust that God will do what he needs to do. Abraham and Isaac had been told of the blessing. Why did they not just trust? Why did they feel the need to take matters into their own hands? They had some bad habits. And habits, I think, is another important thing for us to talk about here this morning. Because sinful habits have a way of repeating themselves. Sinful habits have a way of repeating themselves, not just in your life, but in the life of your kids and their kids and so on and so forth. In his commentary on Genesis, Andrew Steinman says this. He says, um, While Abraham was the first in his family to practice deception, this incident from Isaac's life begins to show that trickery is on its way to becoming a family trait. Later, Rebecca and Jacob will dupe Isaac into giving his blessing to his younger son. Jacob's uncle Laban will hoodwink him. Jacob will be tricked by his sons into believing that Joseph has been killed by a wild animal. Simeon and Levi will deal deceitfully with the men of Shechem. Judah's daughter-in-law will trap him into impregnating her. These repeated acts of deception serve as a warning to parents about the bad examples they can be to their children who learn behaviors by observing them. Deceit and trickery can go through the generations. Any bad habits can get passed on from parent to child, from parent to child, from parent to child. The Bible talks, especially in the Old Testament, there is this notion of generational sin and and also generational curses. And there is a part of this that certainly has the agency of God. 
where he says, I will visit this curse of the sin on generation to generation to generation. But there is a part of this, I truly believe, that is not mystical or supernatural. It is psychological. It is sociological. It's the truth that God knows how we are put together and that our family that we grow up in holds the most formative power in our life. I read this book when I was in seminary. It's called Becoming a Healthier Pastor. Still trying to figure that out. And, and its subtitle is Family Systems Theory and the Pastor's Own Family. It was a real page turner, I tell you. What do I have to share with this? Well, here is the, the truth that I think really shows also true in Isaac's story. The author, Ronald Richardson, says, The family we grew up in, our family of origin, is the most important emotional experience we have in life. Family colors our experience of the rest of our life, shaping the way we tend to perceive ourselves, our relationships, the kind of decisions we make, and the ways we make them. So this is the truth. Our family of origin, the family that we grew up in, forms us more than any other factor outside of the Spirit of God in this life. More than any other factor. And so it, it, these are, there are good and other important things that can help along the way. And so it's, it's great to be plugged into youth Bible study and be attentive to sermons and have mentors in your life. All of those things will pale in comparison to the power of the family you were raised in. That is the truth of what we are finding in sociological studies. And we know this is the case because the same thing is true thousands and thousands of years before with Abraham and with Isaac and with their family. Now, the formation that our family of origin can give us can result in repeating behavior. That's one way that it shows up. And again, from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to, to, to the, the sons of Jacob to, to all of that, yes, and it's still true today. One of the ways that we see this bear itself out is in divorce rates. In her article uh, in Psychology Today, Sarah Epstein says that research shows that children of divorce are more likely to experience a divorce themselves. The statistics vary, but one study by researchers Paul Amato and Daniel, Danielle DeBoer indicate that if a woman's parents divorced, her odds of divorce increased 69%. While if both a husband and wife's parents divorced, the risk of divorce increased 189%. They cite 10 other longitudinal studies over 20 years that reached similar results. Put plainly, they explain that parental divorce is one of the best documented risk factors for marriage dissolution. Again, we saw this taught in the Bible and we see it lived out in front of our eyes. The family that we grew up in forms us and sometimes this formation looks like repeated behavior, but not always. Sometimes this formation from our family looks like polar opposite behavior. So think of people, I know that I have some in my life and you may have some in yours, and there are these, these children that will grow up in, in um, households where alcohol is abused. And they will see all of the, of the brutal underbelly of what substance abuse looks like and the havoc it wreaks on a family. And they will grow up and they will say, I will never drink a drop of alcohol ever again. And then they don't. They swear it off. And even though their behavior is the polar opposite of their parents, their reason for their behavior was their family of origin. So being formed by your family doesn't mean you always repeat behavior. It can also mean you go the other way. But the reason for why you are motivated to live that way is still often the family that you grew up in. So we need to ask ourselves a few diagnostic questions. How has your family, your family that you grew up in or are growing up in, 
How have they formed you? What type of behaviors, good or bad, do you see yourself carrying on? And what type of of behaviors or how are you driven to be different than the example that you saw? I think it's really valuable for us, not just this morning, but as you go in this week, take time to consider, how has my family formed me? What do I want to carry on? And what do I want to do differently? And then, for those of you that have children, follow-up question, how are you forming your family? I mean, parenting is tough. It's hard enough. And this only serves as a reminder of the importance of setting our children up for success. So what are we doing? What are we modeling that will be good that we want our children to emulate and to carry on? How can we limit those bad behaviors that we hope will not go down through the generations? And it is possible to break generational cycles of sin with God's help. So when I say and I read those stats of divorce and you're someone who has lived through that tragic breaking of a marriage relationship, it is not a foregone conclusion that this will happen to your kids. With the Lord's help, you and your kids can start a new cycle. And it is a good goal to desire children to succeed where you fail. And that can also be true with God's help. Just because you are imperfect doesn't mean that, you're, that your kids are going to be bound to go down a certain path. God and his help is at the heart of it all. Which leads us to our final point. That God keeps his promises despite our shortcomings. When we see this pattern of deceit and trickery, That was not the only part of the quote from Steinman. He continues and summarizes saying this, but more importantly, this pattern of behavior demonstrates that Genesis is not engaged in presenting the patriarchal families as ideal clans who merited God's favor. On the contrary, God's favor is given despite the dreadful misbehavior of these people in order to teach that God's grace is freely given to sinners. So yeah, we want to make sure that we do everything we can to form our children and to set a good example. But at the end of the day, God's promise is that he will work through us despite our imperfections, despite our shortcomings. It is not about our perfection. It is about God's grace. And how we parent matters. And how we talk to each other matters. And how we avoid deceit matters. How we follow Jesus makes a difference. But it all takes place, every last bit of it, under God's grace and his mercy and his forgiveness. And his plans and his promises are unconditionally true. And this is proven and assured in Jesus. Uh, Many of you know the story that my mom, a few years ago, passed away of terminal cancer, and she lived at home bedridden for the last few months of her life. There was many rich conversations that uh, we had with her as children, Um, and, and some of them were jovial and fun, and some of them were deep and heavy. And one of the heaviest conversations I had with her was uh, just a few weeks before she passed. And she knew she didn't have much time. And then she looked up at me and she said, I, I, I just wonder if I've done enough. Man, that, that was my mom. That cut me. I mean, she was one of my spiritual heroes. I was like, well, if anyone's done enough, it's her. And she's, she's wondering if she's been a good enough follower of Christ. She's wondering if she did enough as a parent. She's wondering if she spent her time wisely and didn't waste too much of it. She's wondering about all these things. She says, have I done enough? And then I looked at her and I said with full confidence, I said, mom, that's the wrong question. 
The question for any of us is not, have I done enough? The question is, has Jesus done enough? Right? Has Jesus done enough? Because on the cross, where he bled and he died for our sins, when he breathed his last, right before he said, it is finished. It's complete. It's full. It's done. It's taken care of. And so as we are keenly aware of the ways that we fall down and fall short and let each other down and let our kids down, we realize that those words still ring true. It's done. It's paid for. It's complete. Jesus has done enough. So as we seek to live well, we need to remember the grace of God in the journey of our life. Remember grace for your family as you sort through the many ways that they formed you for good or for ill. Remember grace for yourself as you form the others in your family, knowing that you will never be perfect either. Remember to teach grace to your children as they learn what it means to grow into a family of their own because they're never going to be perfect. And remember that the question is not, have I done enough? And the question is instead, has Jesus done enough? And the answer is yes. Yes.